This is Ben. And this is Zoe. And you're listening to Story Club, the podcast, recorded live at the Giant Dwarf Theatre in Sydney. This week, Kirsten Drysdale. This is a story about the time a 65-year-old woman called Margaret watched me do a wee. (laughs) Margaret was the sort of person who, I imagine, enjoyed bonsai, a warm glass of Horlicks before bed, and enhanced interrogation techniques. She was a little bit shorter than me. She had a gentle grey perm to complement her violent smile. And she carried a bag full of sterilised specimen jars with her at all times. She was like Omar from The Wire in that way. Little street hoppers lined up on the corners. Yo, Margaret's coming. But unlike Omar, Margaret worked for the government and it was her job, funded by you, the taxpayer, I might add, to watch me piss. You see... In my younger years, I was apparently an elite athlete playing for the Queensland Scorchers in the National Hockey League. Now, this was a level of competition that would be considered professional if anyone was willing to actually pay to watch us play. (laughs) But nobody was. Nonetheless, we were held to professional standards. This was, after all, the pool from which the national squad was selected to compete in such events as the Olympics. And if you weren't allowed to have detectable drug cheats at the Olympics, then you weren't allowed to have detectable drug cheats at the Queensland State Hockey Centre which was where Margaret and I first met. I was walking off the AstroTurf after our decisive grand final win over arch-rivals New South Wales when I felt the tap on my shoulder. Now, I knew even before turning around that this was not the Australian coach wanting to swear me in as the latest hockey roo. That sort of news comes with more of a firm grip and eager shake of the upper body or a warm, open slap of the lower buttock. But this sinister tap... This was a cold, calculated, staccato-like, Stasi-esque stab of the scapula. And I was not in the least bit surprised when I turned around to see the acronym ASADA embroidered across the polo shirt that pulled tight over Margaret's lumpy breasts. Here I was, face to face with the face of the Australian sports anti-doping authority I'd heard so much about, and that face was joyless. We'd had years of lectures on not taking cold and flu tablets, on not taking weight loss supplements, on making sure we got letters of exemption from the doctor if we had to use an asthma puffer that contained a particular type of steroid or needed cortisone injections for an injury. And this was hockey, for God's sake. We had no Stephen Dank patrolling the dugouts with his wonderful wagon of peptides. Australia's footballers might have been accelerating their muscle recovery with injections of calf stem cells and cheerleaders' tears. But we... We were flat out getting our hands on Gatorade. I am not even sure what sort of drug could be performance-enhancing for hockey. It's not the sort of sport where raw speed or brute strength is really much of an advantage. And as for testing for recreational drugs, in my opinion, if you can play top-level sport while high on anything, you definitely deserve extra points. But none of this higher-order thinking was of any consequence to a crypto-fascist like Margaret. Hello there, are you number six? She asked me, holding up the small plastic tag in her hand, which had that very number printed on it. Now, Margaret had just approached me from behind, 
Behind was the best possible viewing position for the big number that was printed on the back of my bodysuit, which was indeed number six. So she didn't really need to ask that question, and the fact that she did ask it made me realise that she was trying to read me, scouring my face with those beady little policing eyes of hers, hoping to spot any leakage in my response that might give away the fact that I had something to hide. Because the fact was, I did have something to hide. So I answered as nonchalantly as I could, while twisting my head around to look back over my shoulder as though I just needed to check when I hadn't morphed into an eight. Ah, yeah, I think I am number six. Yes, Margaret smiled. You've been selected to complete a random drug test. I'll need you to provide a urine sample. I'll need to accompany you from now until you have submitted the sample. And I will need to witness you providing the sample. She didn't need to bother explaining. We all knew the drill. From the moment you're notified that you've been chosen to the moment you hand over your warm jars of wee, always with a little bit spitefully dribbled down the side. (laughs) You cannot leave the side of the Asada drug tester. You can't have any booze, which is a bummer when the rest of the team is having champagne in celebration. You can't shower unless you want the drug tester to come and stand in the cubicle with you. You can't go home. You can't get changed. You've just got to hang out together until your kidneys do their thing. And that can take quite a while, especially when you've just been running around for two hours in the Queensland sun and are somewhat dehydrated. And even more especially when you've got a little bit of stage fright at the prospect of pissing on cue for someone you've never met before. Like, it's fine if you know them. And even more especially when you have a sudden flashback to that Sunday morning a few short weeks ago when you sat on the roof with some friends after a big night out in Brisbane's Fortitude Valley and smoked a joint. Now, before I go on, I just want to make it clear I was no Ben Cousins. I took my sporting commitment pretty seriously. I'd spent years of getting up at 5am to go to training before work, then more training after work and gym sessions and road runs and games and injuries and all of that takes up a huge chunk of your 20s. It means you don't get to go to the gigs you want to see, all the parties your friends are at, all the birthday dinners and festivals and picnics and road trips, but the payoff is playing the game. The sheer visceral joy of using your body in a contest. Sport is sanctioned aggression and violence. And frankly, it's a thrilling experience. And I didn't want that taken away from me. So this Sunday morning, sitting on the roof of my friend's place in New Farm after dancing our feet raw to Milo at the family nightclub, which was the coolest nightclub in Brisbane because it had a bar made of ice on the top floor, the frozen water kind. This Sunday morning was a rare occasion. I felt young, I felt carefree, I got lost in the moment, and I felt like having a bit of a joint, and I had some without thinking it through until it was too late. There were several minutes of warm, blazed bliss. Golden rays of sunlight broke over the horizon, birds chirped, the earth turned, and everything was beautiful and hilarious. We sat together in awe of the world and the very fact that we'd fluked apart in it, and ate very, very, very many barbecue shapes. But several minutes were up. I won't repeat for you the phrase I uttered in my slightly stoned state upon remembering I had an upcoming tournament. I won't repeat for you the phrase I uttered upon realising that marijuana is the one drug that can stay in your system for quite a long time. Up to three months, according to the internet, which I had promptly consulted. 
Nor will I repeat for you the phrase I uttered upon imagining receiving the aforementioned tap on the shoulder at this tournament and the scandal and fallout that would follow. Because if you test positive for a banned substance, not only are you banned from playing for five years, but your entire team goes down with you. They're banned for two years and stripped of any premierships they've won. What's more, the hockey community is a pretty straight breed of people. Now, maybe not many of you here consider weed a big deal, but to them, smoking pot is like having a heroin enema while mainlining methamphetamine and doing shots of baby's blood. I would be forever known as the closet junkie. My friends on the roof did their best to calm me down and reassure me it was all going to be okay. What are the odds that you're going to get picked, really, they said. They had a point. The odds were slim, very slim, maybe one in 300. But I'm a fairly paranoid sort of person at the best of times, so at the stone of times, Omar had already lined me up. <laughs> it took three hours and four bottles of water, from the time of the shoulder tap to the time my bladder reached capacity. Margaret and I passed the time by sitting together in the change room for the post-match debrief, standing together on the, on the podium as my team was presented with our trophy, milling around in the bar, reliving the highlights of the game we'd just played. I think Margaret was actually a bit shocked by some of the bold language used by we sporting young ladies, but hey, if you've signed up for a job that requires you to quite literally look at cunts, you should probably get a bit more comfortable with the use of that word. <laughs> anyway... Finally, we reached the point in our relationship where I was able to say, I think I'm ready to wee for you now. <laughs> Margaret took me into a cubicle behind the office. She handed me a jar with a blue lid and instructed me to open it. She told me to pull my skirt up to my armpits and my bodysuit and underwear down to my knees to ensure she had a clear and unobstructed view of my genitals. She bent down to become level with her target. I guess you could say we were lips to lips. My pelvic floor muscles locked up, petrified. We stood there for a minute or so. Nothing happening, just my exposed vulva enjoying the breeze of Margaret's suspicious breath. My hand hovering the jar underneath it, hoping I'd lined it upright. Finally came a trickle and then a light amber flow, and then a healthy, high-pressure stream, the first wash of which hit the edge of the jar and splashed off onto Margaret's right shoulder. <laughs> she didn't flinch. She didn't so much as blink. As I reached the 100 mil mark, she said, you can stop now and finish in the toilet. But she didn't turn around. Apparently concerned there was a chance I'd whip out a secret stash of masking agent from I don't know where, but you can imagine, right? So I emptied the rest of my bladder while staring her straight in the eyes as she stared icily back. If only I'd had a number two in me at that moment. <laughs> I could have provided her with a complimentary sample of that too. I flushed and redressed myself and she led me into the next room where I had to pour half of the sample into another jar with a red lid. I then had to personally seal, label and sign the A and B jars so that I couldn't later claim they'd been tampered with. Margaret swept them up into a Ziploc bag, packed up the paperwork and strode out without so much as a goodbye. The sound of the specimen jars clanging together in her bag faded with her footsteps down the hallway, a sound not unlike that of a rattling shotgun against the flapping fabric of a trench coat. 
Weeks passed. I sweated. I came up with a catalogue of outrageous explanations as to how pot could have possibly ended up in my body. My favourite of which was that I'd been unwittingly fed a hash cookie by some unscrupulous hippies on a camping trip. Which you must admit is more creative than my mum gave me a diet pill, Warney. Until finally, at three o'clock on a Thursday afternoon, my coach called to let me know my test had come back clear. And I pictured Margaret sitting somewhere in the outer suburbs of Brisbane in a mouldy green velvet wingback chair taking a swig of Horlicks laced with a tangy dash of bee sample. <laughs> about the podcast or the story pub live show head to giantwarf.com.au thanks for listening <laughs>